This is Greg Olson here to tell you about my new podcast, TE1. On the show, I had a chance to talk to my fellow tight ends who have revolutionized the position from an extra lineman to a dual threat superstar. And just like my guests have changed the game, this year, NFLSundayTicket.tv is revolutionizing your NFL viewing experience. Stream all the live out-of-market NFL games every Sunday on your favorite devices and never miss a moment from your favorite players. Visit NFLSundayTicket.tv and use the promo code GREG88 at checkout and get 15% off your subscription. That's NFLSundayTicket.tv and the promo code GREG88. Subscribe to TE1 and get NFLSundayTicket.tv, an unmatched dual threat. And we got a special guest today. We got Will Carroll now with Under the Knife. He's got the Under the Knife newsletter. If you like to follow injuries, maybe you bet, maybe you play fantasy sports, maybe you just like injuries. Uh, Will Carroll is the guy to go to. Will, thanks so much for the time, buddy. It is great to have you on the podcast. I don't know how long you've known Ryan, but uh, it's been a long time since you and me had I don't even know what it was probably steak and lobster at a nice place in DC. It was very many <laughs> moons ago. It was it was very nice. Uh, that's where we, we there was this tower of, of shrimp and yes. it was beautiful. Yes. Except I'm allergic to shrimp, so yep. uh, that was a downside. Uh, you loaded up, so that was nice <laughs> for you. <laughs> hey, so in all seriousness, though, we're seeing teams go down. The Marlins. The Phillies, the Cardinals, things like this. Um, is it better to look at this from a macro view, maybe that we expected this to happen? Or if you get down in the trenches, we've got a serious problem. We might not finish the season. It's a little of both, Holden. Uh, you know, really what we have is a situation where, to some extent, this is not baseball's fault. You know, at one level, you could say, well, look at the NBA, look at the NHL. And I would honestly say it's the latter that's the bigger deal. Look, if baseball would just go to Canada, I don't think this would be as big a problem because COVID is under control there. Uh, on the other hand, if you're going to be outside a bubble uh, and you're going to try to travel and have the players basically be on the honor system, you've anticipated that there's going to be problems. And I think Major League Baseball tipped its hand when they put the 30-man taxi squad, alternate site, whatever you want to call it, that was telling us how many people would have to get sick before they shut this thing down. I don't think it's going to take one team. I don't think it's going to take two teams. I think as long as they can have a sufficient amount of baseball going on and that they can you know, get enough teams close to 60 games, 
uh, I think it'll be okay. Yeah, I think they were handed a gift when it was the Marlins because, for God's sakes, who can tell the difference between the Marlins starters and six guys off the street? Uh, unless you're a really hardcore gambler or in Miami, you don't know these guys. Uh, it's not going to be a big deal. I mean, Lewis Brinson is probably a bigger name than half of them, and he was at the alternate site. Uh, So I think that was a gift. Cardinals, okay, Yadier Molina people know. Uh, This isn't like the Yankees have gotten hit with it, which would create a media firestorm. That's the big worry for this, is that the perception gets worse. Uh, So I think they're going to keep going. I said early on, that the only thing that would shut this down is a travel ban. And I'm going to stick with that. So, Will, I'm going to take you in a uh, different direction here. One of the things that we uh, most recently talked about was um, I I wrote that piece on, um, oh, man, uh, Walter Johnson. And I I said Walter Johnson probably threw 88 miles an hour. And, um, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, you and I talked about maybe uh, collaborating on something where – um, you know, we look at yeah, how hard that. guys were actually throwing throughout history. And um, I, I think we're at a point now where people seem to think guys are going to stop continuing to throw harder. Uh, do you oh, agree no. with that? Or do you think no, that? No, 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 no. No, and actually, I meant to bring this up to you because I thought that piece and the work you did on it was so brilliant. And there's so many guys that we could really talk about. Honestly, I think this is a book deal. Um, but it's one of those things where because velocity has become everything, uh, where we're watching Dustin May throw crazy pitches, where we're seeing guys go out there, uh, who was DeGrom throwing 101, 102. Uh, even if you're saying that's a hot gun or whatever we call Hawkeye now, it's not even a gun. It's like, what is it? Doppler or something. Um, it's one of those things where velocity has become everything. I scouted a kid last year who was throwing 104. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. What is going on with this? There, there were always kids that threw hard. There was always that outlier, Nolan Ryan, J.R. Richards, who would throw 99, 100. But that was a touch. These kids, you know, if you look at a Kopech, um, I'm blanking on the kid's name in Texas. He didn't get drafted until the second round. Um, these kids are, you know, living at a hundred, and that's the crazy part. Here's a kid who was touching 104, and he didn't get drafted until the second round. Uh, I think we're headed towards, honestly, I'm going to say 110 in the next few years. And what? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Glenn Fleissig, who's the biomechanist at the American Sports Medicine Institute, the guy that James Andrews listens to uh, in, in these things, says it's going to top out there. I think it's going to be higher. I think it's going to be up towards 120, but there is going to be a cost. Uh, nobody, unless your name is Aroldis Chapman, survives throwing 100 miles an hour very long. They end up on a surgeon's table for either shoulder or elbow. I mean, Michael Kopech throws 105, 106. He's on his third Tommy John. So uh, it's one of those things where you have to take a look at it and say, is it worth it? And every single GM and pitching coach in the world is saying, yep, yep, sure is. So, uh, you know, that, that kind of leads me to my next question. We, we've got guys now who are throwing change-ups 
mm-hmm. as hard as fastballs were like 30 years ago. Yeah. And, you know, you kind of uh, gave us a little lead to it. I, I'm of the school thought. I, I think guys are going to throw upwards of 110 in my lifetime at least. But, uh, you know, you you said maybe even 120. I I, I just – Oh, I can't fathom that. How is a human being p- capable of doing so? Well, you know, it is honestly just efficiency. Can we do better? And what I take a look at is, you know, other sports where we've seen some kind of jump. I mean, if you take a look at golf, just recently, you know, in, in the matter of the, the, the pause and reset, for COVID, Bryson DeChambeau put on 40 pounds. Yeah. That, that's not crazy. Uh, but he's driving the ball 400 feet. Now, some of that is equipment. But it's not like Bryson DeChambeau has a better driver than Tiger Woods or uh, Ricky Fowler or uh, I'm pretty much out of golfers I can name right now. So that's one thing. Same thing with tennis. You know, tennis's serve has gotten faster and faster over the last 15 years. Some of that is equipment, but we've also kind of hit a peak with that. You know, there's only so much graphite you can put into a uh, a racket. The string patterns aren't that big a deal. Can you tell my dad plays tennis so I actually understand some of this stuff? It's one of those things where with baseball, you don't have that. You have the human body. But we've changed the technology of biomechanics of measurement, of training over the last five years in a way we've never really done. Uh, and full credit to Kyle Body. What the, the guys at Driveline have done have built on the work of guys like Tom House uh, and, and a bunch of others out there, but they've got guys throwing really, really hard. And I don't think that's going to change. And I don't think that's going to slow down. So, you know, to me, it's it's funny because you keep bringing up everything that I want to talk about, and then you, you bring up Driveline. And uh, I actually have a, a buddy of mine his, whose kid is going to go uh, pitch for Driveline, and um, he's uh-huh. headed to Penn State on a, uh, a scholarship. And, um, you know, talking about Penn State, um, uh, Coach Cooper, who is with Penn State, his kid yeah. just had uh, Tommy John surgery. And... Um, I mean, it seems like it's more and more prevalent nowadays. And, you know, one of one of my buddies, uh, Lance McCullers Jr., coming off of Tommy John yeah. and looking good, his arm is it's like it's better. How is that possible? It's not better. This has long been one of the things. And I did actually last time uh, we got together. The reason I was in Washington, D.C., uh, watching Holden eat a tower of shrimp was because I was getting an award for writing uh, a big thing on Tommy John. Um, and, and I had the last, you know, I had the honor uh, to have the last interview with Frank Job. And, and unfortunately he passed on uh, a great doctor. I, he, he's, he should be in the hall of fame, no question about it. Uh, but one of the things he said he regretted is that he didn't explain it well enough. In the 30 years, almost 40, since he had done the surgery, he just he never figured out how to get people to understand. All he was doing was replacing a ligament. Nobody gets ACL surgery and runs faster. Nobody, uh, you know, replaces anything. And you don't replace a part on your car unless, you know, one for one. 
uh, if you put a turbocharger on there, yes, it gets faster. What changes is that McCullers and everybody else that has had Tommy John surgery had a year to do nothing but focus on throwing. They weren't getting overloaded. They weren't getting tired. They were working out. They were focused on getting their arm better. Look, for years I've said, and I've written pretty extensively on this, what if we just took somebody and said, your arm's fine, but you're going to do Tommy John rehab for a year. I almost had Doug Melvin, who at the time was the GM of the Brewers, uh, ready to do this, and, and he didn't just because cost. Um, but we're essentially doing that with everybody right now. The fact that we don't have a minor league season means that pretty much everybody's taking a year off. And, and I don't mean that they're sitting on the couch sipping tequila like I am, but uh, <laughs> it's a situation where these guys are going to driveline, going down to APEC, uh, going to one of the facilities where people are doing this kind of work. So we're essentially having the biggest experiment in baseball history right now. And, and the teams aren't really in control of it, which is really uh, distressing uh, some people inside the teams. So I don't think you, and flat out, you do not get better because you come back from Tommy John surgery. You get better in some cases because you're rested, you're stronger, and you're a little more focused on your biomechanics. So with McCullers, yeah, he looks great. Is he better? No, absolutely not. So what you're saying is a 46-year-old man that ruptured his Achilles four and a half months year, uh, ago as a 45-year-old is not going to bounce back and be faster than he was and have a higher vertical. No, but, you know, we, we were talking about this with Mike Soroka. Um, I can remember back, what was it, 2005, 2006, when Kobe Bryant tore his Achilles and, uh, you know, stood up and, and hit another two free throws. I'd have been crying. For, I can't hit free throws to begin with. But, uh, you know, Neil Elitrash went in there, figured out a new way to stitch the Achilles uh, together, and it kind of changed how people rehabbed. Uh, one small change... Uh, and, and it's not, you know, wasn't like he used some crazy new technique. It was just a little bit different. And guys were coming back instead of 18 months, they were coming back in six months. And whether it's Kobe Bryant or Terrell Suggs, uh, I was saying that I think Soroka, even at this point here, you know, essentially August 1st, I think he's going to be back in spring training of next year, assuming that we're on a normal schedule because yeah. it's, it's just that simple to come back from. Uh, not, as not an easy, athlete, but not a, as an athlete, not as a middle-aged man, it sucks. It's well, for, it, it does. It's not fun. Rehab is never fun. Um, but you know, the the thing is, you're starting from one place. He's an athlete, so he's starting from another. He's getting 24-hour care. I'm guessing you're not. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, there there's a lot of things that that athletes get an advantage on. It starts yes. with the genetics. Uh, and, and it just goes down the list. <laughs> so I am going to make a bet with you because my vertical was two inches before the injury, and I'm going to work mm -hmm. really hard on getting it to about three inches now. So I might have some uh, data for you. Very small sample, but we'll see what happens there. Hey, um, 50%. That's, that's something. Not bad. And I'm with you on Soroka at this point. I'm seeing NFL players come back like Will Disley. He was full mm -hmm. contact nine months. This is football, and it's yeah. different. You're, you're, it's different with uh, baseball, the impact, the angle with which you're landing is going to be a little different. But 
I can't I'm, – I'm with you. I mean, I think he's going to pitch in a regular season game well before the All-Star break. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the thing you also have to remember, and Disley is a great example of this, you know, he's at nine months now. If he was ready at six months, nothing was happening three months ago. I mean, almost literally nothing, uh, but certainly nothing in the NFL. So would he have been back for a normal uh, minicamp? Yeah, probably. Uh, yeah, I can remember people freaking out because Adrian Peterson was in minicamp running in straight lines after his ACL surgery. That's nothing. Uh, it's pretty common. Uh, that same year that Adrian Peterson came back and everybody was saying he was inhuman, uh, you know, Wes Welker had come back in, in a shorter period of time. And I was like, I don't hear anybody saying this little white guy over here is, is, is inhuman. But, yeah, it's just the surgery. It's just the rehab. So, Will, I'm going to backtrack on you a little bit here. Uh, so when I wrote that um, – that article that I uh, wrote about mm-hmm. Walter Johnson, you know, I, I, I titled it Walter Johnson probably threw 88 miles an hour. And um, yeah. I got a lot of criticism from people. I would say the number one criticism I got was that I compared it to um, uh, the mile and then I compared it to the yeah. 100 uh, meter dash. And I said, you know, it, it, in terms of physical skill, if the arm advanced just as much as somebody's ability to run did, um, then that's probably what he threw. And um, a lot of people said to me, they were like, oh, you should compare it to the javelin instead. And you spoke uh, about the um, the uh, equipment and stuff. And to me, I, I, I'm just like the the javelin in terms of just equipment got so much better that you can't. Yeah. reasonably compare it to that and where i come from i I'm, I'm saying i think the comparison i made is uh more reasonable but w- what do you think there yeah you know i'll say that equipment got a little bit better there i mean I, one of the things i've been following over the last couple of years has been this sub two project uh that, that you know getting a, a man to run a marathon in under two hours unthinkable i mean i can't even think about running a marathon yeah, I don't even want to drive 26 miles, uh, let alone run it. Uh, and, and these guys are out there doing it. So the shoes and you know some of the the way they're feeding guys and how you deal with the wind, pretty amazing. So the equipment has changed there as well. I think what people think about baseball is that the game hasn't changed. Yeah, the bases are the same. And the pitching mound is the same, which is why they reacted so strongly against moving the mound back. Um, and that, you know, if you watch Babe Ruth or Joe DiMaggio or Mickey Mantle, uh, that you kind of have this, yeah, they played 156 or 162 games. That's kind of the same thing. I don't think anybody has that same sort of romanticism about the NFL. You know, nobody thinks Jim Brown is playing the same game that they're playing today. Yet, you know, everybody wants to compare uh, Aaron Rodgers to Bart Starr. So I think you're right. Uh, I think I think Javelin's a better comparison only because the motion is very, very similar. In fact, Frank Job, the second guy that, that uh, had Tommy John surgery, was a rushing Javelin thrower. And this has been one of my holy grail quests. Uh, Frank couldn't remember his name. And nobody kept a record. I mean, this was back in 1975. 
but I've been for years trying to figure out who the heck this guy was. I don't know if you guys know this. Do you know who the second pitcher to have Tommy John surgery was? Mm-hmm. What a great question. He knows nobody ever gets it. I, who was I know, it? I know, I know your, uh, your He's buddy, Dr. Today. Job said, uh, it would be called, um, or maybe it was Sandy Koufax who said it. It would be called Sandy Koufax surgery had it existed a couple of years prior. Yeah, Dr. Job, the quote was that we'd be calling it Sandy Koufax surgery if I'd thought of it a bit earlier. God, they could no, but it was the greatest careers ever with him, too. Could you imagine that? Yeah. Who was it, Will? Who was it? It was Brett Strom, who's now the, the pitching coach for the Houston Astros. No kidding. Oh, man. Now you know. Huh. You want to ask him a question, or you just want an awkward silence? <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I, like, this, this, I kind of thought this was bad this was your, tequila. your part. <laughs> yeah, was this like the whole – like we landed on the moon, you found out it was Brunch Strom, and now everything's over? My goodness, child. Um, anyways <laughs> – so anything injury-wise that's going on right now that kind of caught your eye, early goings this season, Strasburg's coming back. I thought that was a big one. Scherzer kind of was gimpy coming off the mound. It's Wednesday, right? Mm. Wednesday afternoon when he was yeah. doing that. What are the big injuries right now, top of mind, that you want to talk about? Well, the, the biggest trend I'm seeing is, is that we're not seeing a lot of Tommy John surgeries. Everybody thought we'd be coming back off this pause that the guy wouldn't have done the work. Uh, And if you've read my column or newsletter under the knife, you know that wasn't the case. I am a little surprised that it's as low as it is. Roberto Asuna, the the closer down in Houston, is going to have Tommy John surgery. Tommy Conley uh, had it from uh, from the Yankees. So, you know, there's a couple. And there was somebody – I forget who it was from the Orioles, who was a fringe reliever, had Tommy John surgery. So three since the restart. Um, we've seen a ton, an absolute ton of Fletcher strains. Verlander has it. Uh, yeah, everybody down the list is having Fletcher strains. Uh, Otani uh, is essentially done for the season as a pitcher because of a Fletcher strain. So why are we having this? Uh, actually, on Friday in my newsletter, uh, one of the top performance scientists out there in baseball, Gary McCoy, is writing the intro uh, talking about why he thinks this is the case. And, and I hope everybody will read it. It'll be a free column. Uh, and, man, this is a really strange one because we've had flexor strains for a long time. We've never had them in this amount. Uh, we're seeing some weird ones like Terry's major strains, uh, which is a muscle that kind of overlaps the, uh, the, the rotator cuff, it's a little bit over the, uh, the, the shoulder blade. It's a great barbecue cut, but uh, bad for pitchers. <laughs> and you know, we've seen three of those. In the last eight years, we've had two. So suddenly we're getting something different. Why? I don't know. It could be a fluke. Two of them are on the same team, and Corey Kluber and Jose Leclerc. So it's, nobody has any sort of reasoning for it. Uh, even the Rangers, who are one of the most advanced teams when it comes to technology and biomechanics, they're kind of shrugging their shoulders on this and saying, I don't know. It's not like we were doing something that targeted the Terry's page. Uh, it's not like these guys are very similar pitchers. Uh, heck, Kluber was at Cressy. 
uh, he's basically an outsider in that program. So you can't really blame the Rangers for it. Uh, so we're seeing some weird pitching injuries. And I think you have to embrace the weird this year. Everything is different. Everything is strange. Everything is screwed up. So why not have some weird pitching injuries that we have to figure out? So uh, just a quick fun fact for you. I actually tore my Terry's major when I was on Penn State's powerlifting team. And uh, it's not fun. <laughs> there you go. See, everybody tells me it's really painful. This is one injury <laughs> I haven't had. So uh, – uh, just to flip the switch on you again, um, I know you saw recently um, my uh, co-author wrote an article on my um, my website, and he interviewed Bill Cole, who um, mm-hmm. is at uh, SportsPsychologyCoaching.com and uh, MentalGameCoach.com. And um, Kev took the um, stance that he thought hitters would have a lot of success without fans in the stands, and Bill told him that. No, dude, you're wrong. And as far as um, it's gone so far, uh, the doctor was right. <laughs> Go figure, yeah. right? And um, I, I, I'm just curious what you think about uh, the, um, uh, I guess, the approach for pitchers and for hitters. Because as far as it's played out so far, I mean, the National League DHs are hitting just about you know, a little bit better than the pitchers would otherwise. They're not doing so hot. Yeah, exactly. Um, I I think you're exactly right. I think what we have to realize is that these guys aren't just the robotic stat-generating machines that we'd like them to be. Uh, They are human. Um, I'll answer this in a really long, roundabout way. uh, Last year, I was asked to help coach a division two college team. And, and it was an honor. It was here in my backyard at university of Indianapolis, a very successful program. And, and uh, they were great to bring me in and, and listen to some of my crazy ideas. And one of them was to go with an opener, uh, which is a pitcher who throws the first inning. And then you bring in the, the, the normal starter. Uh, and we've got three really strong starters. We've got a, a lefty that throws in the nineties, uh, another lefty that's really good, and a right-hander who's, you know, he, he, he's kind of a, a tall Maddox. Um, not that good, obviously, or he wouldn't be in division <laughs> two. But uh, it, it's one of the he, – he's a control pitcher. He, he throws hard enough, but uh, the opener was a real change. You know, these guys had to learn how to change their, their, their warm-ups. They had to deal with the fact that they weren't you know, dealing with the leadoff guy. They had to a little bit of loss of control because, you know, there are pitchers out there who just want the ball. Uh, Trevor Bauer always talks about, you know, when, a guy, when the manager comes out to take the ball, he, he almost has to physically take it from him. And there are guys like that. Um, so they had to deal with this. And for me, it was a, essentially a math problem. How do I get my, my best pitcher into the highest leverage situations, which are the seventh and eighth inning in most cases? So the, the opener was more about getting our best pitcher, the three starters, into those innings. And it worked. It absolutely worked. But the psychology of it, the, the resistance to it was something I had never anticipated. Having to deal with actual humans. Uh, who had limited careers, who wanted to go on and do other things. That was a struggle. So I think, to bring this back to your question, I think it 
comes down to the individual. There are guys who can sit there and hit off a tee all day. Uh, there are guys who can hit off machines and motivate themselves and be fine. There are other guys that have to get out there and kind of have that one-on-one, mano-a-mano uh, competition. I want to beat you. There are other guys who can compete with themselves. And I think that if you're internally motivated, then you're going to have better success than the guy who needs the crowd to pump up. <laughs> if you watched any of the the wrestling, whether it was AEW or WWE, uh, it was horrible without fans. You know, they're in an empty arena going through the motions, but you could tell they weren't getting the, the pops from the crowd. Uh, they weren't getting the reaction. They weren't getting the chants and the gasps and the oohs and ahs. Uh, it was empty. Baseball players aren't quite that. So I think there are more pitchers who could sit there and throw to, you know, a grid all day and are motivated by being a little bit better for themselves than hitters who like to take a pitcher long. So uh, I'm a firm believer. Like I, I, I'm a fan of the opener and the idea, but how much do you think that, just the fact that your top three, four hitters aren't facing your starter the first time around, how much do you think that impacts um, the opposing lineup? Uh, quite a bit. You know, none of the teams we played really did the kind of lineup reaction. I, I thought, you know, they would have a left-handed uh, lineup and a right-handed lineup, and we would catch some of them out. Uh, we really didn't do that because at, at the Division two level – you pretty much got the players you've got <laughs> and, and you know, you're not platooning players in most cases, you're not uh, substituting anybody in. And we did tell people what we were doing. So it wasn't like it was a secret. Um, and it was kind of fun because one of the teams we played, uh, the head coach was Len Barker. If you remember him, uh, oh, you're great. For Cleveland. Uh, he, he, exactly. Too, yeah. And, and the hitting coach there was super Joe Charbono. <laughs> how great was that i mean it was two guys who i had watched uh growing up and, and uh you know we had long talks len hates the idea of the opener why because he was a heck of a starter and he wanted the ball all nine innings he doesn't even like closers he, i don't even think he likes the idea of relievers but <laughs> uh going through those i do think it made an advantage um you, you know, not seeing the guys to the, that third time around is a huge thing. We know that the, the second time around, the third time around, the fourth time around, the hitters have seen pretty much everything you had. Um, one of our pitchers wouldn't show his slider until the third time around, and, and it, it, it was massive because all of a sudden here comes this slider, and all they've seen is fastball changeup, and it was like, oh, crap, here's something new I've got to deal with. Uh, which is why it went back down. So I, I think it, it, it's certainly a factor. Um, the other thing is, I think some of these kids were just confused. They didn't know what to deal with. Uh, you know, it, I, I was watching a lot of times the number four hitter. And I was, if, if we get through one, two, three, what happened to him? He was sitting there timing out the guy. Uh, he was ready to go. And then we'd switch pitchers and be like, oh, crap, here's a guy who's better than the guy we started, what the heck? Uh, so just the novelty of it was, was uh, I think, an advantage. So 
last thing, I guess this is what landed you on the show this time. We were both big fans of yours, of course, but you asked if Nelson Cruz was going to be a Hall of Famer. And a couple of weeks ago, Spader, I think you and I did discuss this. And if you look at the guy's jaws, I mean, you look at the seven, eight year span that he's had, Spader. This guy, 874 OPS, uh, 133 OPS plus. He has 404 home runs. Is he going to have to get the 500 to get in the hall? I mean, it's, it's start. he's starting to flirt with it. The problem is is that he's 40 and he's probably going to have to put a couple yeah. more seasons up. Right, Spader? Well, I think this absolutely – the fact that he's got to deal with, you know, 100 fewer games this season absolutely kills him. But when you look at this dude's numbers – since September 22nd, 2019, and this is as of when I uh, last tweeted, uh, I'm going to quickly run down this. And uh, um, uh, I'm terribly sorry, Will, that you got to listen to this. But no, his, 30 plate appearances, <laughs> his 30 plate appearances are single, walk, walk, single, walk, ground out, single, 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 ground out, single, homer, walk, strikeout, single, double, double, homer, pop out. Double walk, single strikeout, single strikeout, single strikeout, double single single single. Uh, he hasn't he hasn't made a consecutive outs in thirty <laughs> plate appearances with men on base. Think about that, Carol. This guy is dominating. I think the fact that he got popped for PEDs is going to have a lot of writers that keep him out. Mm-hmm. I do wonder years from now if he's okay. That's my question, you know, and if we're, we're talking about Nelson Cruz, uh, that's the one thing it's how much does the off field stuff count? The two reasons I ask that is because, you know, Nelson Cruz is a good guy. Uh, I've dealt with him both in Texas and Seattle. Uh, Thad Levine, who's up in uh, Minnesota thinks the world of him because he had him down in Texas. Uh, and he's been a heck of a player. Uh, so how much does that count against, the, the ped implications. Uh, and I personally think that Roger Clemens and Barry Bond should be in. We should yes. wipe the slate clean for a lot of these guys and say, you know, it was part of the game at that point. Uh, let's, you know, if you want to put an asterisk on their, their plaque, fine, just give them a plaque because you can't tell the story of baseball. Well, it's about baseball history. Exactly. 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 So yeah, there, we've got, we've got ped users in the hall of fame. If you want to get really technical, uh, Hank Aaron uh, would be one of those. So it's one of those situations for me. More You're singing my favorite song, going, my friend. <laughs> yeah. How are we going to recalibrate our idea of what a, a Hall of Famer is? We've always said 300 wins for pitcher. There is no pitcher in today's game that's going to get anywhere close to 300 wins. But you can't tell me Clayton Kershaw isn't the second coming uh, of Sandy Koufax because he is their careers up to the point that Koufax retired were remarkably similar, even though they're not the same kind of pitcher. Um, how are we going to recalibrate the home run numbers? I realize that we've got guys like Albert Pujols, who's knocking on the door of Willie Mays number, uh, even though he is a shell of what he was, uh, especially given his age. Uh, we've got guys like Mike Trout who are on track to hit 600 home runs. Are we going to recalibrate that 500 home run threshold? And I think we are, but I think Nelson Cruz is unfortunately going to be one of the guys on the front end of that. Yeah, Harold Baines. Yeah, Edgar Martinez. 
I'm, I don't think you can really put Nelson Cruz in that category. That said, the guy who's going to lead him in or not is going to be David Ortiz. There's no question about that. So, uh, you know, if you're telling me David Ortiz isn't a Hall of Famer, I'm going to question why you have a vote. So hold on. It's actually funny you say that because I um, this is not where I intended to bring this, but I'm I'm curious as to what you think. I uh, and I've been bitching about this with Holden for the last, I don't know, five, six shows. I applied to BBWAA. (laughs) (laughs) I know where this is going. (laughs) I applied to BBWAA. And um, I was rejected initially because uh, baseball is not my main source of income. And uh, essentially, I responded to that, that, hey, just a heads up, I shared this with a number of BBWA members, and they all said, that's bullshit. And um, uh, the response I got back was, it doesn't have to be your main source of income. It has to be your um, – I, I, I don't even what, – what the hell they said, like your your um, your real job or something. I, I don't, Honestly, yeah. I don't even remember off the top of my head. <laughs> well, you know, you're speaking to one of the first guys from the internet to have ever been a BBWA member. And I then I lost my card uh, because Bleacher Report wasn't a – at the time – uh, wasn't a signatory. And, and so because Bleacher Report wasn't, I lost my card after four years. Um, you know, it was me, Keith Law, Rob Nyer, and Christina Carl. And, and uh, you know, those, two of those are about to get a Hall of Fame vote. Uh, and, and I'm on the outside looking in. I would love to have that vote, um, but I don't think I you will. You absolutely even though it's been my, There's no uh, doubt in my mind. But it's not going to happen. You know, it's it's a different world now. You know, think of this. You know, you're being allowed to apply. I wasn't even allowed to apply for three years because they were saying Baseball Prospectus wasn't a valid publication. And we heard that again with Bleacher Report. You've got to be kidding. No, no, absolutely. Uh. Rob Nyer was knocked down. Um, And remember, Rob and Keith were from ESPN. ESPN was flat out told they could for two years, they were told they couldn't have people who were strictly internet writers. And then when they did, you could only have two. Um, And this was at a time when guys like Peter Gammons, who were lifetime members at that point uh, and a God among men, um, Buster only had just come over. Uh, It's almost unthinkable to think where it is, you know, to bring this full circle. Baseball changes over time. So, yes, you should be in because you do good work. It should come down to do you do good good work. That said, I've also been a little bit guarded um, because, you know, a lot of people have said, why doesn't Vin Scully have a Hall of Fame vote? Because Vin Scully is not a baseball writer. Uh, Vin Scully was maybe the best announcer we've ever had. But he was also a Dodgers employee, and he watched the Dodgers every day. Yes, he saw everybody. And yes, he could probably be uh, a valid Hall of Fame vote. But the idea was that the baseball writers kind of had a hold on it. They saw who it was, and that five years afterwards, so that you didn't kind of vote for the guy you liked, uh, 
you had to have some sort of 30,000 foot view of their career. They've been as good as they could possibly be at that. So I have no complaints with the idea that broadcasters don't get a vote, though I understand the argument. Uh, I would like to see the baseball writers be more inclusive. I would like to see the baseball writers be more progressive. But, hey, you know, it's the world we live in. So my biggest beef with the whole thing is I've spoken to a number of these guys advocating for um, guys like Tim Raines and Edgar Martinez, who did eventually get in the Hall of Fame, Larry Walker. And um, yeah, for for example, in advocating for Tim Raines, I had somebody reach out to me saying, like, dude, you were a United States Marine. Why would you advocate for somebody who played the majority of their career in Canada? And to me, I'm so dumbfounded by how stupid of a comment that is that I'm like, why? You have a vote and I don't? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's kind of crazy. I remember, you know, a lot of people won't remember this, but Rich Letterer, who was an Internet writer with me and a bunch of other guys at at a website called Baseball Toaster, um, he basically pounded the table so hard for Burt Blylevin that in his last year of eligibility, he got in. And, and there was another guy who I won't name because he's an asshole uh, <laughs> who really did the same for uh, – no, seriously uh, – did the same for Tim Raines. Uh, I know. I can see everybody running to – yeah. So I, you, that, you can make a difference. And there are a lot of writers out there who kind of adopted somebody. Um, I think it has to be about baseball. Here's one. Kurt Schilling is a guy I like. I don't agree with Kurt Schilling on almost anything. Uh, Kurt Schilling on Twitter makes me want to pull what little hair I have left out. But man, when I talk to him about pitching, that guy knows his stuff. We, and that guy had, was a heck of a pitcher. We've had him on the show. And like I, I, I am brilliant. in almost the exact same school of thought with you. Like so many times I have found myself like, chill, dude, chill with this Twitter stuff. But he's got himself into like a position where he has to be like a caricature of himself in order to make a living. A little bit, yeah, but I get it. There's a performative element to it. But hey, I just like talking pitching with Kurt. And if that makes me a jerk, well, I've been called a lot worse probably today. Um, so I think what it comes down to is, you know, the Hall of Fame should be about, were you part of baseball history? Wherever you draw that invisible line, wherever you look at the people who are there, that should be it. Now, I, all these committees and, and everything else that are putting people in, uh, they all lost any credibility to me when they didn't put Buck O'Neill in. Um, but it's one of those situations where, personally, uh, I think the writers have done a great job. I've never – I've disagreed with some decisions. I've said, how could you not put this guy in? How could you put this guy in? But I think, overall, they do a great job with it. I think Jack O'Connell and the boys have done – just about as good as they could do. Again, I don't ag- agree with everything. I'd love them to be a little more progressive in membership, but uh, you know, I've got no argument with them. Jack O'Connell ignored 15 of my emails. 
I don't think Jack O'Connell <laughs> answers emails. He's worse than Joe Shia and getting back emails. All right, Will, awesome to catch up with you, buddy. Why don't you uh, plug under the knife in the great newsletter you sent out there, too? Yeah, exactly. Uh, if you'd like to follow my work and support it, you can check it out at underthenife.substack.com, or you can just follow me on Twitter. Uh, there's a link right there, at Injury Expert. Uh, people ask me, why Injury Expert? Because WillCarroll.com was taken by a guitarist. Really? What guitarist? Will Carroll? What did he play with? Uh, he's just a guitarist. Uh, he, he's, he's done a lot of jazz work. There was, there was a drummer, uh, actually, uh, for a band called Death Angel, also Will Carroll, and uh, he had COVID really, really bad. He's, he's doing better now. Uh, it's funny, there's, there's actually an Where, internet group of Death Will Carroll. <laughs> it's my fault for pushing you on it. Will, thank you so much for hopping on, man. It was great catching up with you again. Anytime, hey, guys. I, I think we need to do a, a part two. This, this was so much fun. That's all I got. Okay. Yeah. Good job. Did he leave? I think he left. No, no he Oh, he's here. <laughs> you just decided to go completely silent? All right, listen, I'm ending the show. Follow Spader at the Ace of Spader. Follow me at Old Radio. Follow Will at Under the Knife. Not at Under the Knife. Get Under the Knife. And no. then uh, what? Injury Expert. Well, on Twitter, is Injury Expert. I'm just like, just go to Under the Knife. Just forget about the whole Twitter thing. Just go straight to the point. Is that okay, Spinner? Do you understand what I'm saying here? It works. Five stars, iTunes. That's about it. Will, thank you very much. I appreciate it. And if we're doing the show with Spader next time, uh, good. That'll be wonderful. We'll still have a program. <laughs> thank you. I love you both. Take care, guys.